good morning. Welcome to Stuttgart Harvest Church. I am so glad you're here today. Um, when I think of something as urgent, um, for me, what that means is it's it's urgent today, or maybe it's urgent for this week, the coming week, or it might be urgent for the month that I'm in. And if I'm not careful, then all of those urgent things, that's where my attention goes. That's what I focus on, um, and because it's something that I need to get done. I urgently feel that need, and so it gets my focus. And everything else in my life pretty much has to kind of fight for second place right behind the urgent. That's because, well, it's urgent. Uh, so a simple way to state that is this, urgent things for me become the most important things and the most important things, well, that's what gets my attention. And you might be similar to me in that. A lot of us are that way. Um, and because of this, there are some other really important things in my life that don't get the attention because I'm focused on the urgent things. Now, this month, we have been focusing on Paul and what he has been teaching to a church in Thessalonica. Uh, and he, we are using this title that he is taking them back to school, Jesus style. Now, our schools here started last week. Malvern starts tomorrow. Um, and I brought with me a couple of books. These, believe it or not, um, these are not the actual books, but I found uh, some copies of some of my early readers when I was learning how to read in school. Um, and so there's lots of stories here about uh spot and about Dick and Jane and their friends. And um, so these were it, it. But here's my point. If I didn't learn this with these or something like this, then I never would have made it to these books. These books were my favorite. I really didn't enjoy these at all. <laughs> but these were my favorite. This was my junior year AP English British literature book. I absolutely loved my junior year AP English. And this was my sophomore year AP English book. This was American Lit, and I loved it even more. It was, I just, I, in fact, to this day, I'm still friends with those two teachers on Facebook. Um, but had I not taken care of this, I never would have made it to these. Because that's, this is the foundation. It's so important. And so here's what we've been saying about Paul, that Paul has been in the process of laying a foundation with these people in Thessalonica. Now, the crazy thing is he only had three weeks in order to do that. And during that time, Paul saw their lives connected at Derek Lee's here. Um, <laughs> we saw, I'm so excited. I'll get to see Lee. Um, uh, we just heard him pull. If, if you're on Facebook live, we just heard him pull up on his Harley. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry. I lost track. Um, he's taking them back to school, uh, Jesus style. Um, I do think Jesus would have ridden a Harley, but during that three weeks that he had to lay that foundation, that's all he had was three weeks. And during that three weeks, he saw them 
become a believer, become a, a follower of Jesus. And then Paul was chased out of town. <laughs> and so that's all the influence he had was three weeks, which left this baby church, brand new church, full of brand new Christ followers. They were alone, and all they had was that super fast foundation that Paul built for them in a matter of three weeks. And now this is just months later, maybe maybe three months, somewhere in there. And Paul is now firming up their foundation, filling in some gaps for them. Now, as we look at today's verses, Honestly, as I look at those, I'm not sure that I would label the verses we're using today as urgent. They might be important, but I wouldn't label them as urgent. Because the things we're going to look at today, now they seem to be a little more advanced to me, maybe further down the road for them to learn. I probably wouldn't have taught this to them so early. So here's what this means. As usual, Paul and God's spirit are proving me very, very wrong. <laughs> it happens all the time. Because according to God's spirit, these verses are not for further down the road. They are part of this very beginning foundation for this new church filled with baby believers. So here's what that basically says, which is to say, what I think is important and what God thinks is important seems to be different. And so we're going to go with God. But as we're getting ready to see, as we look at these verses, this stuff actually it's encouraging. It encourages me. And I think by the time we get done today, I think you'll be encouraged as well. Because this, according to God, is an important part of our foundation for what we believe. So it's not just for today. And what we're talking about is not really even for just this week. It's not even for this century. What Paul is teaching about here is for eternity. We're talking about the end of human time stuff here today. This is kind of other world stuff. This is kind of what happens next after this life is done type stuff. And according to God's spirit, it's important and it deserves our attention. C.S. Lewis must have understood what Paul was talking about much better than I. Here's what he had to say. He said, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Now, just remember, this is just a few months after Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica. And he has been worrying about those new believers. He finally has the opportunity to send Timothy back. And so he sends his mentee, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to take a report on how they're doing. And he brings that report back to Paul. And that is actually where Paul gets his information to understand how they're doing on the report that Timothy brings him back. Now, so far, 
what we have talked about largely has been things that Paul had already taught them during that three weeks, and he's kind of repeating the information. Paul's reminding them, hey, here's what we taught during this three-week crash course on how to follow Jesus. But today, we're actually going to have one section where Paul is going to be adding something new, something he has not taught them. Now, remember, they've only been believers for about the one who's been the longest, about three months, many of them less than that. So what he's teaching and what we're going to read today is still part of the foundation. Now, Timothy, when he came back, brought with him a question that the Thessalonian church was asking. And they said, hey, ask Paul this. You see, the Thessalonians, they were worried. Um, They had some anxiety. And the reason is because some of the believers in the church who were following Jesus in that short three-month period, some of them had died. Now, we don't know if they died from being persecuted. We're just not told but they died. And these Christ followers who had died, the ones who were remaining and still alive were now very concerned because they died before Jesus could come back. And they were wondering, what happens now if Jesus comes back and our friends and our family who are following Jesus with us, they have died. And since they've died, they're going to miss the return of Jesus. And so they were concerned and they were worried. In fact, that left them feeling hopeless. It left them with great anxiety and they were very discouraged because their relatives who were following Jesus had died, their friends, people in the church, and they knew they were going to miss the return of Jesus. And Paul, like a very good, kind, loving father, He wants to ease their minds. He wants to take care of their worries. And this is where we're going to pick up the story here with Paul as he's writing this letter. And here's what he has to say. And we are in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know. See, They have already talked. Paul had taught them some of this, but what he's getting ready to teach them now is new information. He says, we want you to know. He didn't say, as you already know. He said, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like the people who have no hope. Now, Paul in this moment is separating everyone in the world into two groups. He's saying when someone dies, there are those who grieve without hope, and there are those who grieve with hope. But the truth remains, no matter which group you are in, you are going to grieve. We all grieve when we lose somebody. Yes, you're going to miss them right now. But he's saying, if that person is a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, no, you're not immune from grieving, but you grieve differently. But as a Christian, we don't grieve the very same way that someone grieves who doesn't have hope. And he's getting ready to clarify by answering their question that Timothy brought with him. 
He says, we want you to know what is going to happen. He said, we want you to know this. Now, let me give you a quick history lesson here. When somebody died, if you were born into the Greco-Roman world in the first century, you pretty much had this idea that death was final, that it was complete, that death was the end. And so if that's the case, then there's going to have an obvious struggle here. Now, you and I, we have thousands of years since Paul wrote this, but we know what Paul wrote, and they were getting ready to read it. So many of us have grown up understanding some of this because it's been around our whole lives. But for them, this was brand new information. They did not know this. This is new for them. You and I, this, uh, a, a lot of what we understand and know about the next life, uh, some of that information comes directly out of this letter we're reading today. This was all new information for them. So for them, if they're Christian, Christ-following family or friends, if they had died in their mind, there is no hope for them. They missed the return of Jesus. And they thought it was hopeless. And Paul is saying, no, 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 not hopeless. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised again to life, this, and please note, it is because of this event, this thing we call the resurrection, this is why we have hope. If the resurrection did not happen, there's no reason for us to meet here today. This is our hope. Because Jesus was raised to life again, Paul is saying, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Notice it is God the Father who is initiating. He's the active agent, but then he gives agency to Jesus for this future action, this resurrection of believers. They're going to be coming back with him. So here's the literal meaning of that verse. It says this, God through Jesus will bring with him those who are sleeping in death. Because Jesus was raised to life, Paul is saying, we will be raised to life too if we're followers of Jesus, if we're connected to him. And that is hope. And he goes on in verse 15. We tell you this directly from the Lord. Now, last week we used a big phrase called apostolic authority, meaning Paul got information directly from God himself. And here he's reminding them, what I'm getting ready to tell you is coming from God himself. It's coming from Jesus himself. Paul is saying the risen Lord Jesus, the one that we're following, the one that we are connecting our lives to, he is the source of what follows. Here's what he says. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. So Paul is saying, listen, church, don't worry. 
Let me ease your anxiety and your worry. The people who are following Jesus who have died are not going to miss out on anything. You who are still living, he's saying, you don't even have an advantage over those who have already died. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with a voice of the ark, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. Now he's saying, so when that happens, then first, so he's going to give us uh, kind of the first part of the order of business of what's going to happen. First, the believers who have died will rise from the graves. In other words, Paul's saying they're not going to miss anything with this event. You have no advantage over them. They're not going to miss a thing. Verse 17, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Did you notice that? Paul's focus seems to be so much less about the geography of where they are for this event. It's less about whether they're on the earth or in the air or in heaven. And it's less about the timing of the event, uh, when this is going to happen. And it's less about the eschatology, which is just a fancy word to say all of those things related to what's going to happen at the end of times. He said, it's not really about all of those things. Paul puts the focus where it belongs. The focus is on that we're going to be with Jesus. So his focus is not when this is going to happen. And it's not even really in what order it's going to happen. That's not his focus. None of that really is his primary concern. His primary concern is who, who we will be with. And I'll be honest, our tendency today is to either make too much of these verses, or our tendency is to make too little of these verses. But Paul's focus, his focus is that we will then be with the Lord forever. His focus is who we will be with and how long we will be with him. Wow. Let's go back to Paul, verse 18. So encourage each other with these words, which brings us all the way back to the beginning, because they were discouraged. They were concerned. When Timothy came back, they said, hey, ask Paul this. We're worried. We're upset. And so Paul takes that from Timothy and then addresses it here in this letter. He told them, don't be discouraged. In fact, because what I'm telling, and with that, I want you to be encouraged. Because what I'm telling you is this. We can have, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope. And this hope is for those who have entrusted their lives to the care and the control 
of Jesus. And now Paul continues this thought because we've just ended chapter four with that. And now he moves into chapter five and he's on the same topic. He says, now concerning how and when this will happen. And this, I love this, this literally translates to now to tell you about the exact time and the conditions of that period of time. In other words, now I'm going to talk about the exact timing that's going to happen, and we're going to talk about all the things, the conditions that that period of time, the things you will be exposed to, the things that will happen around you, the conditions of that time. And he says, concerning that, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. In other words, We've already covered this when I was there for our three-week crash course on how to follow Jesus. But Paul says, okay, let's rewind. Let's go back over this once again. So this is something he has already taught them. Concerning how and when this will happen. For you know, verse 2, for you know quite well, that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Now, he's saying the timing, I don't have to remind you. You won't know. You won't know when it is. The time is, is hidden. Only God knows. And in fact, not only does only God know, but not even the angels in heaven know. And this is so far beyond what my mind can comprehend, what I'm going to say next. But only God the Father knows. Because God the Son, as we understand this, God the Son doesn't even know. And how that can happen because he's God, fully God, I have no idea. But these, this is from God. So that paradox, we just live with it somehow. Jesus doesn't, that one word, that word. But before we get too far from this verse, I want you to look at that one word, that word thief. Thief. Nobody likes a thief, except maybe a thief. <laughs> Nobody likes a thief. How, how strange is it that as Paul is trying to encourage them, that now he throws in a word like thief that doesn't seem to fit the flow of this story, the flow of this explanation. He throws something kind of negative, something kind of scary into the mix with this one word thief. But again, Paul is contrasting two different groups of people. First, he said there is a group with hope. Now there's, and at the same time, there's a group without hope. Those who are following Jesus, those who are not submitting their lives to the care and the control of Jesus. And he's continuing that now. Now he had the positive side, you have hope. And now there's this negative side using the word thief. Paul is actually going to continue this contrast of these two groups. Because what might happen during these days that bring one group hope for the other group, it's going to be a little bit scary. The return of Jesus, for those who have rejected Jesus, who have not given their lives over to the care and the control of Jesus, for them, this same period of time is going to be a little scary. 
And Paul's going to flesh that out a little bit. Verse three, when people, and he's speaking of those people who have rejected Jesus, when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman as her labor begins. Paul is saying, because that's how quickly it's going to happen. That's how surprising it's going to be for the people who are not looking for his return. So the timing is going to be like a thief. They're not going to know. It's going to be suddenly. But the conditions of the time, he's saying, are going to be like a pregnant woman. And then he says, when those pains begin, and there will be no escape. I'm told that once labor pains begin, real labor, there is no escape. Some of that, I'm told. But back then, this analogy that Paul was using, given to him by God's Spirit, there was no escape. Once the labor pains began in the first century, you were exposed to everything that came with the labor pains, all of it. There was no escape. You couldn't stop it. You couldn't rush it. You couldn't hurry it. You had nothing to do with the timing at all. You just had to go through it. And that's what Paul is describing here. For people who have rejected Jesus, there comes a time, he says, it's as a thief in a night. They don't know what's coming. But once it comes, once it arrives, they have to go through it. There is no escape once it arrives. Everything that it brings, they will experience, Paul says. Wow. Whatever conditions come with it, they will go through it all. And it will start quickly. And it brings with it everything that it brings with it. And there is no escape. So suddenly, what Paul is talking about begins to make a little more sense as he is now describing it in more negative terms. And whatever the source of their security was, when they said, we're at peace, everything's okay, whatever the source of that was, suddenly it is interrupted, irrevocably interrupted. It is shattered, and there is no escape, according to Paul. It's like a woman in this event when it is upon her He said it's going to be like that for the unbelieving world, suddenly, inevitably, and with great, great pain. And there is no reversing the matter. So yeah, that's a little spooky. And yeah, when he uses the word thief, now it sounds like, okay, Paul, yeah, that actually is a pretty good choice of words. But as we continue the contrast, as Paul continues it, 
He's saying, but that's not the way it's going to be for those who are following Jesus, who have connected their lives to him, submitted their lives to him. Because as aren't in the dark about what he says to the Thessalonians, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. He's saying, you also don't know when it's going to happen, but you are living in a way where you expect him any moment. So for you, yeah, it is going to be different. Over and over again, Paul in this book, at least one time in every single chapter of this letter, Paul reminds them, expect the return of Jesus. Live in such a way that you know he could come back any moment. Verse 5, for you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. Paul is saying, as a follower of Jesus, someone who has submitted their lives to his care and control, the life of that person is always different. Not only is our eternity different, but the way life is lived while we're here on earth is different as well. So not only do we grieve differently, and not only do we have a different eternity, but we also live these lives differently. If we belong to him, he always makes a difference in how we live. I cannot encourage you enough to be part of every week of our September series. And that, that encouragement goes up fivefold for what we're going to be talking about in October because it's that. If we belong to him, he always makes a difference in how we live. On the lookout, be sick, so be on your guard. In other words, be on the lookout, be on the ready, because absolutely any day, at any moment, be ready he could come back. So he says, not asleep, don't be asleep like others. He says, stay alert and be clear-headed. But you know, as we look at that, it just doesn't seem so urgent because it seems so far down the road. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. And I know at some point they were beginning to wonder, when is this dude coming back? And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're telling you, be ready and live as if he could come back any moment, because he could. But because it seems so far removed, he didn't come back last week. He didn't come back yesterday. And to us, we think, well, he's probably not coming back tomorrow. So we just live our lives the way we want to, with our own agendas, our own priorities. And Paul says, ah, ah, ah no, no, no. Expect his return. Verse 5. For you are children of the light of the day. We don't belong to the darkness. That's not our life. In him is our life. He said, if we don't live in anticipation of his return, if we are not on our guard, if we are living, uh, if we are not uh, aware, he says, don't be asleep. 
Don't get drowsy. In other words, be clear-headed is what he says. And here's why. Because he didn't come back yesterday and he so far hasn't come back today, we think he probably won't come back tomorrow. We become a little, for ourselves, drowsy as we live this life. And he's saying to the Thessalonians, and he's saying to us, no, 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 don't live sleepy. We become comfortable on this earth, in this body, in your body, doing the things we do, making our own decisions, taking care of our families, doing stuff we want to do. We become comfortable. And when we become drowsy, when we become comfortable in this life, then we become comfortable spiritually. And we become comfortable ethically. And then we become comfortable with morality. And with all of that drowsy, settle in and we get really, really drowsy. Because all of this that Paul is talking about right now seems so distant from us. It seems so unimportant for today. It doesn't seem urgent. But Paul writes us and reminds us to remain clear-headed. Have you ever been driving while you're drowsy? Oh, my goodness. It's almost painful, isn't it? I mean, this is kind of similar to what Paul is talking about. Because drowsiness while you're driving, it slowly paralyzes you. I mean, have you ever gone a certain number of miles and then you realize, how in the world did I get here? I don't remember all that. Yeah, all of you commuters, me too. Or if you're in Stuttgart, you got through three stoplights and you don't remember any of them. And you start thinking, was that green or red? And then you're looking for lights. You don't know. You were drowsy. We weren't focused. And when that happens, our attention drifts to something else. And that happens to us spiritually as well. It happens in our spirit. We become lethargic. We get lazy concerning spiritual things. Parents, if you have teenagers who are driving, what do you tell your kids if they're driving and they start to get tired? What do you tell them? We tell them almost all the same thing. At the first sign of sleepiness, pull over, pull over, stop driving, get off the road, stop for a moment, do something about it. You've got to do something to make yourself wake up. I mean, get out, walk around, get some fresh air, find some caffeine, but you don't keep driving. You have to stop and you have to wake up. And spiritually speaking, it's really no different. What Paul is telling these Christ followers is simple. He's saying, don't lose your focus. 
Don't suddenly live five years of your life out of focus and then you're five years later and you look back and you have nothing in your life spiritually, no advancement, no change, no difference. It is important. Paul is saying what I'm teaching you here is foundational. It is important. It is actually urgent, even though it seems so far away. He's saying stay clear-headed at the first sign of spiritual sleepiness, pull over and do something about it. When we forget the stakes, we get drowsy. And he's saying, stop, refocus your life. When gathering with the church on a Sunday is no longer a priority, it's becoming to you as just another thing, as just an option. If there's not something else going on, he says, don't do it. He's saying, pull over, pull your life over and do something. Don't fall asleep spiritually. He's saying, if you find yourself praying less and less and less or not at all, he's saying, pull over and do something about it. Don't fall asleep at the wheel spiritually. If scripture is no longer important to your life and you're not living on it and savoring it, he's saying, please pull over. Wake up. He says, wake up, you're drifting. You're you're changing lanes. You're going into oncoming traffic with your life. You just drove spiritually five miles, five years, and you have no idea how you got there. He said, stop. You're getting drowsy. At the first sign of spiritual drowsiness, he's saying, as you get sleepy, as you see the signs, pull over and do something about it. Make some corrections in your life. And it always begins with that realization, you know? I'm not as active and alert spiritually as I once was. This whole Christian following Jesus thing just doesn't have the same urgent priority that it once had. At the wheel produced. We know that falling asleep at the wheel produces devastating results every time. And it's the same if we're falling asleep spiritually. He goes on in verse 7, night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. He's saying, If a a follower of Jesus doesn't belong in that sleepy world, in that drowsy world, that should not characterize us. 
Verse 8, but let us who live in the light be clear-headed and protected. Now we're getting ready to move into something for us in this letter that's new. I'm not sure if he had already told them this or not, but it's new for us in this letter. He says, let us live in the light protected by the armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. Here's a personal opinion. I'm not sure there's anything more relevant for our day in life right now than that. Because is it not the truth of our salvation, the fact of our salvation that guards our minds? Is not that what keeps us going? I mean, think with me. Most, most American Christians find their identity in one of three areas. Either within their family, they have strong family identity. This is who we are. We just do this. This is us. Or they have a career identity. This is who I am because this is what I do. Or they have a self-identity because of something about them physically Either they're really beautiful or really handsome or really strong or whatever, or they're very intellectual. Those folks who their brains are so big, it pushes all their hair out of their head. <laughs> Those folks, the real smart ones, not me. I've got lots of hair. Or entity in themselves from something social. and how many friends they have and where they stand with their friends and how many people like them. But what do you do when your identity that you have always held on to because of your family, what happens when your family's not working anymore? What happens when your family's not like it once was? What happens when he leaves or she dies? Or parents, the, or when the, the, the nest is empty, what happens then? What happens? Or what do you do when your identity is what you have always uh, had because of your career and what you've done? What happens when that's over? What happens when it's time to retire? Or what happens when you lose that job? You're no longer essential. What happens when the company downsizes and you're out? What happens then if that's where your identity was? What happens when it's your looks or your body or your physical abilities and you are no longer what you once were? What happens when your mind or your intellect starts slipping? What happens when those things happen and your joy has been linked to all of those other identities? I'll tell you what happens. Your world is now falling apart. And Paul is writing to these baby Christians in this baby church, and he's saying, stay clear-headed, stay focused on this 
other world because your confidence and your joy and your identity is supposed to be wrapped up in your relationship with Jesus. The fact that he created you, the fact that he loves you, the fact that he, your God, came to this earth and died for you in your place. That's where your confidence comes from. Your salvation, the hope that you have in this other world because of Jesus. That is what keeps you going when the world around you is unraveling. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. The very protection that we need from this hostile world is the knowledge of whose we are. Because through our, Paul says in verse 9, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ and not pour out his anger on us. He goes on, Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, remember that was their original question, whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. And now Paul gives us a directive, a job. Verse 11, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you already are doing. Because as blood-bought, spirit-led, children of the king, living in a hostile environment, it is going to get discouraging. Life here on earth breeds discouragement. We could write a book, a best-selling book, with just the information of how you have suffered, and we could put all of our stories together, and it would be a best-selling book on how we have suffered and the discouragement that we have faced. And Paul is saying what I'm telling you should be encouraging. I'm not sure that most Christians would agree with Paul because all of this stuff seems to be so far off and so far down the road that it's just not urgent sounding for my day today. And to repeat Paul, he said, remain clear-headed. Stay on point. Stay on topic. And since sometimes it is so hard to do that, Paul nailed it down when he wrote that it's going to take encouragement. It's going to take building each other up. It's going to take some help in order to do that. Because as much as I believe that this is true... And as much as I know that my salvation protects me against, uh, uh, against worry about what's going to happen in this next life, when the world comes crashing down around my life right now even, 
I still need people in my life to come alongside of me and to encourage me. And you do too. And that encouragement, Paul is saying, when I'm discouraged, that encouragement comes from you. And when you're discouraged, that encouragement comes from me. And it happens inside this thing that he started in three weeks and took off because he had to, this thing called a church, a gathering of believers. And it's still happening today where we lock arms with each other and we move through this life encouraging each other. And when I stumble, you're there because our arms are locked. When you stumble, I'm there because our arms are locked. We help each other remember. We help each other understand that when suffering happens, and Paul promises it will, and he promised it will because Jesus promised that it will, that we will help each other and we don't have to throw in the towel when tragedy arrives. Because our identity is in Jesus. It's not even in my family. Because I am now a child of the king. And as Paul wraps up this letter, Paul is imploring these new believers, now just months old and following Jesus. He's encouraging them to encourage one another with confidence that there is another world for believers and expect it and anticipate it. Which leads us to this morning. Every single Christ follower has a responsibility in the life of other people who are following Christ. And at the core of that responsibility, it is because we have hope ourselves. And that's why we can be encouragers. And we are not here in this church to criticize each other or to find fault with each other or to be jealous of someone else's success or someone else's life. We are not here to pick apart what the leaders of the church try to do. We are not here to judge or hurt or give our opinions. We are here to encourage one another. And that is foundational. If you have placed your life into the care and the control of Jesus, the one who is, as we talked about in our last series, the light of the world, then that means he has set you apart and he has set me apart, all of us, for holy living, to be sanctified, to be consecrated. And it means that we get to reflect the light of Jesus. And more than that, we get to reflect the glory of our creator. And it is expressed through the way that we live, through the words that we choose, and the way that we treat each other. Paul says you live your life in such a way that you know Jesus is coming again so that you can have hope. And he said, all of this, I know it seems like other world stuff, but it is 
urgent. Because if nothing else, knowing that Jesus is coming is encouraging. So as we wrap this up this morning, just a question, where, where's your identity? If you find your identity rooted in any of these other things, in anything at all other than your relationship between you and God that happens through Jesus, then that means we're in danger of losing hope. This week, I think Paul would challenge us to take a step to pull over our lives and to refocus and realign our attention on Jesus, place our confidence on Jesus, the confidence that comes with his salvation. At some point is going to end. Your looks are going to leave. Your faculties will be dimmed. Where is your identity rooted? And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, doesn't this kind of sound encouraging? Doesn't it kind of sound a little more hope-filled? Doesn't it sound good? If nothing else, wouldn't you like all of this to be true? I can tell you for me, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And Paul says, encourage one another with this. Let's pray. Father, you chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come here to pour out his anger upon us. No, 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 no. He came here to save us, to die for us. And Jesus, that's what you did. And whether we are dead when you return or whether we are alive when you return, those who have submitted their lives to you, to your care and control, Jesus, you have promised us through your spirit, through the words of Paul, that we will live with you forever. So, we desire to encourage each other with these words. Thank you, Jesus. We know you're coming. We wanna live in anticipation of that. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.